little New Testament postcard, as it was, and we're going to direct our attention there uh, again in the future. Uh, I'd actually would have that intent all week long, right up until Wednesday, that we were going to go back to the book of Jude, and uh, was well on my way when uh, suddenly I just read a few things and and thinking of the nature of this weekend and the the celebration on Tuesday for our nation and really just sensed that the Lord would have us uh, pivot and uh, look at something else this morning. So next week, Lord willing, we will get back to Jude. I I promise that's my intent. This week I was reading a a news article, however, that a, a particular phrase really jumped out to me. And I don't know why it did this week and not other weeks, because it wasn't anything new, uh, but, but it just struck me. It was a particular article, and it was commenting on recent cultural events in the West. Of course, the West refers to Western nations. That would include Europe, America, certainly. Uh, it's west of Rome, actually, is that terminology. It's, it's the Christianized nations, And it was just commenting on recent cultural events, particularly in the city of London, and what is taking place there with regard to change and culture. And the writer stated unequivocally and said, in our lifetime, we are witnessing the death of the West. And it wasn't like this could possibly happen. It wasn't like, um, you know, if we don't turn around, this will happen. It was simply unequivocally stated, Western nations are crumbling from within, and we are seeing it in our lifetime. At first, I was in some kind of disbelief. I thought, well, how can that be? I mean, the wealth of those nations, the technology, uh, what, what has transpired in, in the West, history of the Western world, And then, as I thought about it, I thought, I can't deny that. That we really are living in an unprecedented time that will change how our children and grandchildren live. And then I was a bit fearful. Really, in my heart, I was like, can this be? I mean... How many more 4th of Julys will we celebrate? How long before that's no longer something celebratory, but maybe even to be disdained and despised? And the crumbling of an entire culture and nation. And I found all these things going on in my heart, and I'm wondering about, about that. And then I really had to just kind of give myself a reality check that that God hasn't lost his reign over these things. That this isn't something that is a terrible accident that somehow has slipped by the notice of the Lord. And my mind again was turned to a a passage that we've looked at in time past, but it's a passage that really expresses this in some detail, and the whole intent of the passage is for us to have 
not fear, but confidence in what God is doing in spite of what we may see. And so thinking of the holiday this weekend and with those kinds of thoughts, uh, my focus, and I want our focus once again to go to the second psalm, Psalm 2. We've, we've come across this psalm in our series on the book of the Revelation because it's quoted there. It is quoted or alluded to several times in the New Testament. And it really is a passage that kind of summarizes all of world history and puts it in right perspective. And so this morning I want to read the psalm and once again we're going to go through its contents and see why it is preserved for us in God's Word. Psalm 2, beginning in verse 1, reads, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. This morning, I want to preach to you on resting in the reign of Christ, or resting in Christ's reign. What does that mean? How does Psalm 2 describe this? And why does it bring us rest? And so let's pray and ask God to help us as we study His Word today. Lord, would you give us your mind As we examine these truths together and remind ourselves who is in charge. So we remind ourselves of where this world is headed and what is our place in it now. And so we ask that even as we celebrate this weekend of our nation and your providential rule in it, even up to this point, we would be thankful for it, 
But Lord, we would know that it is in your hands. And you, indeed, are the ruler of it. And so may we take comfort and may we be encouraged by what we hear from your word. In Jesus' name, amen. The second psalm was primarily written to God's people who witnessed the rebellion of the kings of the earth to God's Davidic king. The Lord had brought the nation of Israel out of Egypt and established them as a kingdom, and he'd said that through the line of David there would be the kingly reign, and that this would be his chosen nation. And so when that would take place, there was obvious rebellion of surrounding nations, and there was often warfare, and the armies would be gathered together against the Davidic king, and even in Jerusalem, and the people would wonder, why, why is this taking place? Why won't these people submit to God's king that he has chosen? And so this psalm teaches us that uh, it encourages this embattled group of people, Israel, with the news that, that the Lord in the earth, in his battle with the kings of the world, as it were, that he will be victorious, that he indeed will reign And the psalm ends with this pronouncement of blessing. Look at the last line of verse 12. Blessed are all who who don't reject the reign of this king, but actually find refuge in him. Blessed are all who will align themselves under the reign of this king and submit to him. And that is the place of blessing. And so from this psalm, we learn this fundamental truth that a blessed life stems from the conviction that Christ rules the world. A blessed life that is at rest and is at peace with God is a life that understands Jesus is the rightful ruler of my life because he's the rightful ruler of all things. Therefore, I should align myself under his rule submission in my heart to this king. How does this psalm communicate that, and in what ways does it make this point? You'll notice that it is a song. There are four stanzas. We've been over this before. Three verses each. In your ESV, they're probably divided that way with space, for instance, in between verses 3 and 4 and 6 and 7 and 9 and 10. So it's setting off these three stanzas. But each stanza of the psalm has a different speaker. For instance, look at the first stanza, and verse 2 says, There are kings in the earth, and there are rulers, and the end of verse 2 it says they're saying something. What are they saying? Well, you can see the quotation marks in verse 3. Here's a quote. Here's here's the kings of the earth in rebellion against God, and here's their heart, and we know what's in their heart because this is what they say. So you have these nations that are represented by their rulers in rage against God and his rule. And then in verses 4 to 6, this second stanza, you have another speaker. And it's the one who sits in the heavens, according to verse 4. It's God himself 
And he speaks not from an earthly perspective, but from heaven. And he has something to say to these rulers. And you'll notice verse 6 again has quotation marks. Here's what he says. I've set my king. So the first stanza, the world and the rulers of the world speak. In the second stanza, God speaks. In the third stanza, beginning in verse 7, now you have a different speaker that says, I will tell of the decree. And here's a speaker that says, I've heard what the ruler of heaven has decreed. I'm going to explain it. And the second line in verse 7, he says, the Lord said to me, this ruler in heaven gives this decree to me, and now you have these quotation marks, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And this is the king himself speaking. He's telling of the decree of the ruler of heaven what he is given to do. And finally, in verse 10, without quotation marks in this last stanza, you just have uh, an appeal It says, now therefore, O kings, be wise and be warned, O rulers. And and it's the psalmist himself making this appeal. But really it's the idea of the appeal of this ruler to say, here's how you must align yourself with me. So really what you have in these three stanzas, in stanza one, you have the world raging. In stanza two, you have God the Father speaking. In stanza three, you have God the Son speaking. And really, in stanza four, you have God the Holy Spirit speaking. And this is God's response to what is taking place in the world that we even see today. And so this morning, we're going to look at those four stanzas briefly. We're going to look at the rage of the nations, the response of God, the right of the king, And then the remedy for the nations. Let's begin with the first stanza in this rage of the nations. You'll notice there's a sense of surprise in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? Why is this taking place? Well, who are these nations and people in particular? If you go back in the Old Testament, you find the table of nations. You don't need to turn there, but in Genesis chapter 10, we're told that when Noah came off the ark, he had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and it says, of those sons of Noah, all the nations of the earth came about. And the Bible uses a specific term in Hebrew, it's called, it's, it's goyim, and it's referring to the nations as a whole, and it says, Here are the nations. It's it's all the people on the earth. It's all these descendants from Noah. There are 70 families listed in Genesis chapter 5. If you look at a map today, there are over 190 nations on the earth. People in their nationalities. But who is speaking in particular? According to verse 2, we're told that it's the kings of these nations and the rulers are speaking. In other words... These national groups of people organize themselves into governments, but they select leaders, and there are leaders to represent them, even their own concerns among the nations. And often that occurs at a place in New York called the United what? 
nations. And I remind you that this was written 3,000 years ago, and yet we see the same thing happening today. People in their nations, rulers speaking forth, setting agenda. And what the psalmist is dealing with in verse 2 is the enmity of these nations against the rightful ruler, the one true God. What are they doing? Well, according to verse 1, they're raging. That means a noisy kind of assembly. It's like a riot. They are plotting. See the second line in in verse 1? The people's plot. That's actually the same word in the first psalm and the second verse when it says of the blessed man, he meditates day and night. This is the same word. They meditate. But their meditation is not on the law of God. It's actually how to cast off the law of God. They think and scheme of ways to do this. They set themselves, according to verse 2, these kings do. In other words, they want to take a defensive position. And they take counsel together, according to verse 2. They're in conspiracy And all of their raging and plotting and meditating and conspiracy is ultimately against the end of verse 2, the Lord and his anointed. The word anointed there is the Hebrew word Mashiach. We would pronounce it in English, Messiah. And if you translate that into Greek... The Greek term for the Old Testament word Messiah is the term Christ. And so it says you have these nations that are gathered in a rage against the Lord, the ruler of heaven and earth, and his anointed, his Christ. And so what the first stanza tells us is these people are scheming for ways to resist the gracious governance of God because here's what they say in verse 3 let us burst their bonds apart whose bonds the Lord and his Christ let us cast off these restraints cast away their cords from us now bonds and cords stand for being in submission or in subjection and this is saying Throughout human history, you've had human beings that have gathered themselves in nations, appointed leaders, and their whole design has partly been to cast off God's restraint, to remove his governance. And this stems right from what happened in the Garden of Eden. God was the ruler of his world. He still is. Satan's temptation to Adam was this. Why live under that ruler? Rule yourself. And Adam took the bait. And ever since then, the mass of humanity has been in rebellion against the rightful ruler of the world. And these rulers think that the Lord keeps them in bondage. And this is the course of human history. It's the raging and imagining of mankind in their government offices to cast off God's restraint. 
Now, beloved, when you listen to what is going on in society, you cannot help but read Psalm 2. When you have people in high positions that make policy or design legislature that deliberately stands in the face of God's moral law, do you know what's happening? The nations are raging. Who says we can't do this? Who says this is morally wrong? We'll actually legislate that it's right, and you're morally wrong for saying that it's wrong. And it is the rage of nations. Why do they do this? What is their motive? Occasionally, you will have an honest kind of philosopher that speaks to this. This was the case with a man named Aldous Huxley. He wrote a book entitled Ends and Means, and he's talking about the world in which he lives and philosophy and how to figure it out. And Huxley says this, he said, I had a motive for wanting the world to not have meaning. In other words, that there wasn't a God who put it together for a certain reason. He said, I really had a motive in this. And he says, consequently, I just assumed that the world had no meaning and was able without any difficulty to find a satisfying, a, 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 a satisfying reason for this assumption. Here's what he says. I didn't want there to be a God because I didn't want there to be a God. I stated that there wasn't a God, and I found in my heart a satisfying reason to believe that. And here's what else he says. He says, the philosopher who finds no meaning in the world is not concerned exclusively with the problem in pure metaphysics, or he means reasoning. He is also concerned to prove that there is no valid reason why he personally should not do as he wants to do, or why his friends should not seize political power and govern in the way that they find most advantageous to themselves. For myself, the philosophy of meaninglessness was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexual and political. There's an unregenerate man just being honest, and he says, when, when we wanted to find out that there was no meaning in the world or there's no God who actually created it for a purpose, he said, really what I was wanting is just to do whatever I wanted and to get the right people in office that will rule however they want to and to liberate things sexually and politically. Now, beloved, that's exactly what we're reading in Psalm 2. And that's exactly what we see today. This week, I don't know if you've been paying attention, but there was a series of Supreme Court rulings, as is always the case in June. They close their session, they pronounce their rulings, they give their arguments. And there was a series of decisions by the Supreme Court of the United States this week, decisions that, that for the most part, just seem generally understood to be well thought out and to be reasonable. And yet, if you've read any of the news, have you noticed the reaction to what was decided this week? It's, it's rage. It's, how could they do this? How could they deny me my liberty? And, and you read any of the airwaves, and there's a rage and an unsettledness. 
And now they're plotting, how do we pack this court? How can we keep this from happening again? How can we overturn these things? And all I want to tell you is this has been going on for millennia. This isn't new, so don't let it unsettle you. But recognize it for what it is. Because oftentimes when we see this, it shakes us. Especially when we see powerful people and heads of state, like our president, backing this rage. And that's when you just need to open your Bible and look at Psalm 2 and say, God said this was going to happen and it always will. But what should we do? What is a right response? Well, notice God's response. Look at the second stanza, verse 4. He who sits where? He who sits where? In the heavens. What does that tell you? couple things. It tells you what's going on on earth, we get all worked up about because it seems like it's out of control. But there's somebody who doesn't uh, rule simply on earth. He reigns in heaven. And he's not standing up and agitated. He's sitting there, hand in chin, saying, that's interesting. Because there really is a sense of mockery in God's response. Look at what it says. He laughs. He holds them in derision. And I think we tend to think, well, God wouldn't do that. God doesn't mock this way, does he? Well, the New English translation translates as the Lord taunts them. And I just remind you that there are times when the Lord himself had done that. Do you remember Elijah on Mount Carmel? Do you think there was a little taunting there? He said, where's your God? Is he sleeping? Is he out to lunch? Cry a little louder. And there are times, beloved, when the ruler of heaven simply mocks the frail humanity that resists him. What is God's response? God is not threatened. He says, this is sheer arrogance. He is not threatened by what takes place. In fact, when it comes to the nations, and you think of all the power of the nations of the earth, and all the technology, and all the wealth, and all the amassed influence and power, we would say, that is formidable. But here is God's perspective on the nations. Isaiah 40, God says, Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket and are accounted as dust on the scales. Behold, he, God, takes up the coastlands like fine dust, and all the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God says all those nations and all their raging, God says they're like the dust I blow off a scale. They're like that last drop out of a bucket. God says, let the nations rage. I'm not threatened. I'm not in angst over these things. It's like I have an older brother. He's seven years older than I. And so you can imagine that, that span of age when we were growing up. 
And when he was in those teenage years and had developed into a young man, I was still a very little, scrawny little guy. And one time I thought, I'm going to show my big brother who's boss. And we had gotten into an argument, and I had gotten in a rage, and I went back to swing at him. And I actually clipped him a little bit. And all I remember the next thing is being on the ground and pinned down and him saying, don't ever do that again. <laughs> and it was, it was futile, right? Now, he showed amazing restraint. And that's what's being expressed in Psalm 2. God is not threatened by any of this. So should we be? Well, notice what God says about this. Verse 6. God speaks to these rulers, and he says, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. God says, you think your rulers and kings? And God says, there's one king, and I've set him on Zion. That's my chosen king. And he is the true ruler. And there's nothing you can do about it. You look to usurp him, but actually I've established him there on Zion. Well, how would you know this king when you find him? Who is this ultimate king that he's talking about? This is written a thousand years before Jesus. It's someone from the Davidic line, we know that. How would you recognize him? Well, look at what the king says in the third stanza, the right of the king. Verse 7, this third stanza, I will tell the decree. Who is the I? It's, it's the one that has just been mentioned in verse 6. It's this king, the king that sat in Jerusalem. The king is speaking and he says, I'm going to tell the decree. I'm going to tell what the ruler of heaven, the one seated in the heaven laughing, what he has decreed. He says in verse 7, The Lord, the one in heaven, said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. What is this referring to? Again, we've been over this in time past, but it, it, it does us well to get this fixed in our minds. How was this king a son and begotten? You might be tempted to read that and think, oh, this must be referring to the incarnation, to Christmas, that, that God sent Jesus, the second person of the Godhead from heaven, to become man, and that was his begetting, as it were. We know he's always existed, but he became a man, and therefore he was the king. But that's not the way the New Testament writers interpret this. In fact, I do want you to turn to the book of Acts in chapter 4. Acts chapter 4, and notice with me verse 24. This is now after Jesus has ascended. There's been Pentecost. The church is born. People have been swept into the kingdom. Peter and John are arrested because they're preaching of Jesus, and they're before the council, and the council threatens them and then turns them away. And Peter and John come back to the group of believers, and they pray this way. Look at verse 24. And when they heard it, this group of believers, 
that Peter and John were released, they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, okay, when did the Holy Spirit speak through David about what was going on in Jerusalem in those days? Well, here when he said this, why did the Gentiles or the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves, the rulers were gathered together against the Lord, against his anointed. Where's that from? Psalm 2, they're saying, you talked about this in Psalm 2, verse 27, for truly in this city, what city? Jerusalem, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed both Herod, there's a king, Pontius Pilate, there's a ruler, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You can see what they're saying is Psalm 2 had its ultimate fulfillment at Calvary. When these rulers said, we don't want Jesus as king. Crucify him. And they said this was the ultimate rebellion of humanity against God's king. And they killed him. But that's not the end of the story, is it? What happened next? Look at Acts 13. Here now is the Apostle Paul. He's preaching Paul and Barnabas in Pisidia, Antioch. And he mentions this. Look at Acts 13. And notice with me verse 26. Paul says, Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham and those among you who fear God, to us has been sent the message of this salvation. For those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers, because they did not recognize him, Jesus, nor understand the utterance of the prophets which are read every Sabbath, they fulfilled them by condemning him. Verse 28. And though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb. But God did what? Raised him from the dead, verse 31, and for many days he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, who are now his witnesses with these people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, think Psalm 2, this he has fulfilled to us their children by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. And what he's saying is this. All the way back in Psalm 2 when it said, You're my son, today I've begotten you. That's not a reference to his incarnation. It's a reference to what? His resurrection. That when God raised him from the dead. And when God did that, he confirmed, This is my king. You rejected him and you slew him but I actually took your evil and brought the best good from it. Because he now is undoubtedly the king. How is he undoubtedly the king? Because he has conquered mankind's greatest enemy, which is sin. And the wages of sin is what? Death. 
And how do you know Jesus conquered sin? Because he conquered death. Therefore, look at Acts 17. Paul now preaching again at Mars Hill, the Oropagus, among philosophers. And here's what he says to them, Acts 17, verse 26. Paul preaches and he says, And he, that is God the Father, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and their boundaries for their dwelling places. He did so that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way to God toward him and find him. Yet he's actually not far from any of us. And then he quotes a couple of uh, modern-day poets. But look at verse 29. Paul wraps this up. He says, Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art or imagination of mankind. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands people everywhere to do what? Repent. Turn from your idolatry, turn from your rage, turn from your lack of submission. Why? Verse 31, because God has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. Who's this man? Well, of this he's given assurance to all by raising this man from the dead. Who's that? Jesus. And here's what Paul is saying. You rejected Christ, you crucified him, God raised him to demonstrate that he is the true king, therefore he will be the judge of every man. And if you don't submit to this king, you will be under his wrath forever. And this is what Psalm 2 is teaching us. Go back to Psalm 2. Here's the decree. You're my son. Today I've begotten you. God raised him from the dead, marking him out as king. Verse 8, he says to this king, ask of, me of the, of, ask of me, I'll give you the nations for your heritage and the ends of the earth for your possession. Here's what he means by that. You're the king. It's demonstrated by your resurrection. So ask of me. We'll take your fame to the nations. And when people bow the knee to you, they'll be safe. That's why Matthew 28, Jesus, some of his last words on earth were this. He said, all authority has been given unto me in heaven and in earth. Therefore, you go and make disciples. You go and tell people about me that all these nations in rebellion would bow the knee and become my inheritance. This is the demonstration of the king's right to rule. And right now he rules in the hearts of people who will bow to him. One day he will rule literally. That's verse 9 in the psalm. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. In my understanding of the scripture, that's a future day that's coming. And when he returns, like we read of in Revelation 19 some time ago, he will come with a sword from his mouth and strike down the kings of the earth, and he will rule and reign for a thousand years. This is what the psalm is teaching us. This is how things end. This is the right of the king, this particular king, to rule in your life now and to rule forever. Finally, 
Look at the remedy for the nations. This is the last stanza, Psalm 2, verse 10. These are the words of the Spirit. It's always the Holy Spirit in the Scripture that is wooing and convicting and pointing people to the truth. Here now is the message of the Spirit. Now therefore, O kings, you raging kings, be wise, and be warned, you rulers that are plotting. Two things, he says. Number one, serve the Lord with fear. Recognize the rightful position of this king to rule. Beloved, if any generation can be marked by this, it's ours. There's no fear of God before people's eyes. People thumb their nose at the thought of a God. They reject any possibility of a lawgiver or a moral restrainer. There's no fear of God. And this psalm says, you're raging, you think you're doing something, God laughs, he set his king, you'd better be fearful. Serve him in fear. And then he says this, verse 12, and kiss this son. What son? The son of verse 7, the son begotten. The resurrected son. What is it to kiss this son? This is the kiss of submission. In the ancient world, people would kiss the feet of a king. It would demonstrate their homage and submission to this one. It happened between Samuel and Saul. It happens in other places in the scripture. And it's the idea of, of a complete surrender and submission and acknowledgement of the right of this ruler. And I place myself gladly under that. That is why Jesus said in Matthew 28, not only go and make disciples of all the nations, but he says, baptizing them and teaching them everything that I have what? Do you know the verse? Baptize them and teach them everything I have commanded you. And Jesus says, it's right for these people not just to pray a prayer and sign on the dotted line and say, I'm a Christian. No, you'll know it when they actually keep my word. They do what I've commanded because in their heart they've kissed the son and they're submissive to this king. That's why Romans 10, 9 and 10 says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth that Jesus is Lord, Believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You'll be safe, safe from his just wrath. The psalmist is teaching us this truth that a blessed life here and now and in the future stems from the conviction that Christ rules the world and he has every right to rule you and to rule me. So, Beloved, let me ask you today, the Bible says we are safest when we embrace this understanding of Christ as king of our life. Is that true of you? Do you know that you can sit in this church and you can sit here week after week under the preaching of God's word and say, I'm a Christian, and play the part and talk the walk and look really good and go out the rest of the week and live like you are under the rule of yourself. And what happened on Sunday has no bearing on you the rest of the week. 
because you're not really under the rule of Christ. You've never really turned from yourself. And you wonder why your life is such a mess. Why it's always hardship and heartache and everything I do seems to come to nothing and fruition. And, and it seems like the harder I try, the worse it gets because I just don't know where to turn. And the Bible says you need to take solace and put yourself under the rule of the king. And listen to him. And heed his word. Follow his will. Because this is the blessed life. The place of refuge. When you discover that, we know that together as the Lord's people. There may be stress and there may be trouble in the world around us, but in my heart there is peace. Because I know who rules the world. Because he rules me. And blessed are all who find refuge in him. Have you ever come to Christ to find refuge? Salvation from your sin and sinful ways. If not, you'll never know the peace of God. Let's pray together.